Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backchat. 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 Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed. You are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. As always, we're going to give you the news you haven't heard on your airwaves this week. That's right. First up is Pam Barker from New Service Y Foundations to discuss housing affordability, homelessness and how young people have been affected during the coronavirus pandemic. After that, for World Refugee Day, our producer Nicole Ilyagoyeva spoke to Newtown's The Social Outfit about supporting Sydney's refugee community through the fashion industry. But we want to hear from you. Join the conversation and text us in on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at BackchatFBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. So during the pandemic, more than 5,000 rough sleepers were temporarily housed, demonstrating the government's ability to step in with large-scale accommodation. But it also started the discussion of what housing should look like, given that Sydney alone will need one million more homes in the next two decades. Now, with the recession around the corner and unemployment on the rise, affordable housing is more important than ever. Our first guest is Pam Barker, CEO of Youth Social Service Y Foundations. She's joining us to discuss the importance of affordable housing, particularly for at-risk youth. Hi, Pam. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. So what problems has the pandemic exposed within our housing system? Yeah, so the main things that we're seeing at the moment amongst young people is the inability to afford to... um, withhold, uh, I guess, continue rent, um, renting in the private rental market, but also the affordability of housing for young people to get into. It's been, you know, an ongoing issue across New South Wales for some time now, but now we have the COVID-19 that's really affected our economy and the pending, re- well, the current recession that's been confirmed with the score, um, soaring unemployment rates. We're going to see young people more than ever really struggle to afford to be able to pay rents across New South Wales, and we will see increases in homelessness as a result. So coming out of lockdown, as you mentioned, unemployment figures are high and we're approaching a recession. How important is affordable housing and public housing at a time like this? Yeah, now more than ever. um, I think, you know, with people um, being on low incomes, work being very scarce, it will become a competitive job market. For young people who are going into entry-level positions, it's going to be very competitive and hard. So having access to affordable housing is really important to prevent homelessness. And if we don't, we will continue to see steady increases of youth homelessness like we have over the last 10 years. So how vulnerable are international students and people on temporary visas during the lockdown, uh, especially when it comes to accessing affordable housing? Yeah, incredibly, because they don't get access to a lot of things that we can get access to here in Australia. And they really rely on the gig economy. Um, And I know I was watching a a uh, news coverage of um, the issues around Uber Eats and the influx of people doing that type of Uber Eats job to earn money. And people have gone from earning $200 a day down to $35 a day. And a lot of these people are international students who are here on education visas who are needing to pay rents themselves and they're still quite young. So we find that this cohort of young people really struggle to get access to the things that our young people now need to get access to. But not only that, 
getting access to, to social housing for young people is almost impossible with the current waiting list. So it's a no-win situation for, for young people across our state. So what kind of options are available to young people who are homeless? Yeah, so what generally happens is young people will either couch surf, they'll um, sleep in cars, they'll sleep rough, but not your classical rough. They'll usually sleep on trains at night time or, you know, if you're a uni student and you've become homeless, we see trends for uni students will sleep, you know, out in the areas during the daytime. They don't appear to be homeless, you know, be quite resourceful. These types of homelessness becomes very hard to uh, facilitate as a young person and then you do tend to see a lot of young people street sleeping. So when this stuff happens to a young person, young people will usually be picked up by a street outreach service or will reach out to one of the hotlines. And then from there, a specialist homelessness service will try to support them by taking them in, provide them a a bed, meals and some support to get them what they need. Um, However, the the sector itself is under-resourced and underfunded. So sometimes that can even be a challenge. So given all of those challenges, would you still recommend social housing to young people? I would, but we need youth-specific social housing. I think, um, you know, the, the community housing waiting lists are really long for adults. And we know that a lot of young people... Community housing shouldn't be the one one size fits all. This is the solution for you. We need to make sure that we have models that are very much youth specialist models in the social housing sector, supported by wraparound twenty. That sort of wraparound, sort of holistic, and maybe sometimes um, that transitional twenty four hour support leading to that point where you get a social house, and then hopefully from there you would go out and and go into independent private rental and continue on with your career. We want young people to exit homelessness and exit systems. We want them to be self-sufficient. So it frees up the system for the the more vulnerable people that are needing those systems um, at the time. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We're speaking with Pam Barker from Y Foundations about protecting at-risk youth through housing. Remember, you can join in on the conversation. Text us in on 0409-945-945. Now, Pam, the New South Wales government provided temporary hotels and rentals for those sleeping rough during the crisis, but that might be coming to an end soon. What are some long-term solutions to help us tackle homelessness? Yeah, definitely. I can only speak, um, you know, youth specific because that is my expertise, but definitely providing transitional properties or transitional services where young people can be immediately supported, um, that are trauma informed, that allow young people to get that wraparound support and then providing the trajectory out of homelessness. I think it's really important that once you have been homeless, it is a once off occurrence. And it, it's not, it's, the system's designed to never allow you to fall into that again. But what we do know is a lot of people who do become homeless as young people tend to um, experience homelessness later in life. So it's really important we focus on dealing with trauma and providing that transitional option with support. And then looking at social housing models that are youth-specific, designed for young people. There's things like your FOIAs, which are education or employment first models where young people can really be in a supportive um, environment that's like a community with other young people that helps empower them to, to live fulfilling lives that, that allow them to make a difference to the world and, you know, become people like you and me, the CEOs of organisations and, um, you know, your um, TV show hosts and 
doctors, nurses. Um, so there really needs to be an investment in our young people fast now more than ever. So some people have been uh, temporarily housed in hotels during the pandemic. What's going to be happening to those people and is there a short-term plan for them? Yeah, I can only speak from a youth perspective. So if you're over, say you're 19, 20, 21, up to 25, um, some of those models could be um, appropriate for you. There is a community housing stimulus that has been brought you know, to the sector by the government, which will house those people who were sleeping rough and are in temporary accommodation and can be transferred into that housing um, to, I guess, stop um, the, the homelessness experience they were experiencing. But it's really going to take some serious wraparound support um, and a system that works for people, not against them, to really end um, that homelessness experience for that person. Now, with young people, if you're under 18, that environment's not, a, not appropriate for you. You can't sign a lease if you're under 18. So those models are not going to be an option for young people under 18. And, I mean, living in a one-bedroom apartment on your own 19, 20 years old may not even be appropriate for you. So, unfortunately, the one-size-fits-all social housing option is not the best option for our young people. This is one, and it's a great, it's a welcome um, support given to the sector and the people who have experienced homelessness, but we need to invest um, in a pathway out of homelessness with multiple models that suit young people. So, Pam, is this just a matter of building more public housing or are there other systemic issues that need to be resolved here? Well, yes, it, there are some systemic issues like good old youth allowance that hasn't been raised, which is a bit of an issue, the amount of that. There's no commitment past the stimulus package I think it's August or September dates um, for youth allowance to remain at the higher rate. But we do know that the JobKeeper will continue, which has been welcomed, but young people are missing out again there. Um, so there's a piece around young people being able to afford to live, and we are getting some great outcomes at the moment with young people as the increase to that youth allowance amount. They are able to support themselves better, and we're getting great stories from across New South Wales of where young people are starting to exceed finally instead of flounder in poverty. So, you know, we can we, we see these things do work and they do provide the appropriate supports when we give people what they need. So obviously there's a financial piece, but there's definitely a youth housing, appropriate youth housing piece that needs to be looked at um, because, you know, you can't, if you're under 18, you can't go into, into community housing. You can't sign a lease if you're under 18. So you really need to um, have options for you um, where you're actually given um, an opportunity to get a fresh start to set yourself up and learn some valuable life skills. So the federal government recently announced grants for people looking to renovate or build their own homes. What do you think of this scheme? I mean, I think it's terrific, but we could also um, put that money into creating more youth social housing models which will also um, stimulate the economist, uh, the economy sorry, and will have um, a return on investment for the government just as good. I think while that is very welcome to a lot of middle class people and I mean I'm for them, if I had a home I would definitely like to take advantage of that if there was a need for upgrading or um, you know fulfilling my dream in my home for it to look a particular way but unfortunately the downside of that is um, the most vulnerable suffer, again, as always, um, and the investment in those people, um, it does not occur. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Pam. 
Thank you. Enjoy your day. That was Pam Barker from Why Foundations and why we can do on what we can do to improve access for housing for at-risk youth. That's right. But don't turn that dial because in a couple of minutes we're going to be providing you a World Refugee Day Day special on fashion. Yes. But right now we are going to go to a song. This is Vexo by Kei Trinata and Goldlink. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. It is World Refugee Day, a time to raise awareness and celebrate the contributions made by refugees every day. According to the Wear the Change campaign, only 20% of women from a refugee background are in the labour force. But one fashion label is trying to change that. The social outfit in Newtown have helped hundreds of refugee and migrant women get their foot in the door through employment, education and training programs. Our producer, Nicole Ilyagoyeva, spoke with Kate Clugsen from The Social Outfit on supporting Sydney refugee communities through fashion. Check it out. Hi, Kate. Thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To start off, only 20% of female humanitarian migrants are engaged in the workforce in Australia. How does The Social Outfit support newly arrived refugee and migrant women? When the Social Outfit was founded in 2014, we realised that humanitarian migrants, particularly women, did face some of the most complex barriers to getting into employment. We also realised that a skill that these women have is, um, you know, they come from cultures and and histories that are um, where they've been engaged in tailoring and dressmaking and sewing, and a lot of them learned sewing from a young age. So they have these incredible sewing skills, but maybe because of language barriers or social isolation, they weren't being able to pathway into work. So we set up a fashion label specifically to create employment, um, to kind of match the skills that they had with, um, you know, this distinctive Australian fashion label we're based in Newtown, and we really want to celebrate um, the creativity and the strengths and the skills um, that our humanitarian migrants bring right here in Sydney. How important is your program when it comes to providing refugees and migrants with training and employment opportunities? Well, I guess what we've really tried to do is create a pathway from, you know, identifying skills that um, this group of women have, wanting to build on those existing skills as well as teach new ones. So um, in addition to recruiting really wonderful sewers um, to the fashion label who are producing all of our garments and our collections, we also have some non-profit programs that are designed to identify people who are interested in using their creativity um, in new ways. So we do training programs where we work um, in high school with um, young new migrants, we do arts programs, creative arts from, you know, teaching all sorts of visual art techniques with young people that then um, becomes used as a pattern um, for the garment that's then printed on ethically made silk um, on the clothes. And we also have some upskilling programs in um, crafts as well as industrial manufacturing. So then we try and pathway them into ongoing employment after they've spent time with us as well. So we have a, a retail training program. Um, and retail, I think, is a great industry for um, young new migrants to get into um, because you don't sort of have to do like a lengthy university degree. A lot of it is really based on, on the job skills that you can learn. Is there someone you've employed whose story has stood out to you? 
the story that stands out to me um, is a young woman called Jihan who was engaged in our retail training program last year. So that's a paid um, six-month traineeship. And she came from Iraq. And uh, when I asked her what she liked best about being in Australia, um, she said uh, the fact that women can work. You know, like as a young woman, to be able to have a vision for a career and to be employed in Australia was just such um, an eye-opening thing for her. And she was able to set her goals and be ambitious about how she wanted to um, craft her career and, um, you know, engage with her sense of purpose and what she wanted to do. And that's not an opportunity that she had in Iraq. So, um, yeah, that one really stands out to me. The social outfit is taking a stand against uh, clothes that aren't ethically made. How has the organisation fostered a safe environment for the people that work there? So the social outfit is accredited by Ethical Clothing Australia, which is pretty much the benchmark to look for if you want to ensure that the clothes you buy are from a genuinely ethical label because there is a lot of talk about, you know, just because a label's made in Australia doesn't necessarily mean that it's um, ethically manufactured and there's a lot of greenwashing and things out there. So um, we are accredited by Ethical Clothing Australia and it's a very rigorous certification process. So all of our staff are on um, you know, proper employment where they get their, their wages, their holiday pay, their superannuation, their leave loading. It's not just a cash in hand piecework um, kind of engagement, which is a lot of what happens in the fashion industry where a woman is say, uh, yeah, say woman, but sometimes men, they're working from home and someone says, well, you know, I'm going to give you three cents for every cuff that you sew. And, um, you know, that is not ethical. That is not fair. That is not the right way to do it. People need to be on your books. They need to be paid fairly and with all the benefits of, um, you know, Australian employment. You worked with students from Fairfield High School on a line of clothing last year. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so our digital print fashion project um, is designed um, as an offer or opportunity for young new migrants who are often engaged in an intensive English program as they sort of um, make that transition into um, high school. And we come and we offer a creative arts program um, to share new creative techniques and our facilitator will often speak to the young people about what it's like coming to Australia and um, as they're feeling a sense of belonging and getting settled and then they make art to um, communicate those stories. And So the Fairfield print was done last year um, with the Fairfield Intensive English Centre and there were I think 12 young new migrants who worked collaboratively on developing a print so they each um, developed an individual artwork and then our facilitator and designer put it together um, in a whole digital print that was then screen print and ethically here in Sydney um, and turned into clothing, so dresses, scrunchies, clutch purses and, and things like that. So we really believe that fashion can be a vehicle to, um, to celebrate the stories and the creativity of our, of our newly arrived migrants. They use dead stock material to make their clothes. What does that term mean? Yeah, so um, dead stock, it's not not the greatest phrase. I've also called remnant fabric, but it is dead in a sense that the label no longer needs it or wants to use it. So fashion industries will often build into their margins um, excess 
So they, they buy a whole lot of fabric and then when they're done using it, if they've got leftovers, it will often be sent to landfill. Um, some of them will pay for people to come and pick it up and take it to the dump or sometimes there's a third-party fabric merchant who comes and picks it up and then resells it. But we actually work directly with a number of labels in Sydney. They'll call us up when they've got some fabric or we might call them and say, hey, we're looking specifically for this and this in these lengths. What have you got? Um, and then they will pass that on to us so that that way they're making a positive contribution to not send their dead stock to landfill and we're actually able to, to reuse that fabric in our new clothing collection. On average, each Australian buys more than 27 kilos of textiles annually with about 23 of this landing up in landfill. What are the environmental problems associated with fast fashion and should we be worried? Oh my gosh, yes, we should be very worried. Um, fashion um, has increasingly been chasing profit at the expense of the planet and human rights. And what I mean by that is that there is an incredible culture of waste I think fashion really, um, fast fashion and mainstream fashion really promotes this idea of new is better. And so there's this stigma around outfit repeating. Um, I read something that like one in 10 people wouldn't be seen wearing the same outfit more than once in Australia. So that means you're wearing something and then you're just chucking it out. So if you're going to wear it once and chuck it, you want to spend less on it. And if you're spending less on it, that means the person who made it was probably not paid very well or perhaps even not paid at all because there's a culture of forced labour and slave labour in the fashion industry. So I think this whole movement around like the idea of disposable fashion and fast fashion is incredibly damaging and I think we need to be more proud to wear clothes that were made well, that were made fair, that cost their real value, you know, like if you see something and you go, oh, that looks expensive, maybe it's because it's the true value of the human labour uh, that went into making those clothes. And if you made something if you buy something that was made well, it's going to last much longer. And, you know, there's no fear in outfit repeating because it gives you a way to express your own personal style and buy garments that you're going to love and wear again and again and again. And that's the way that we can individually create change um, in an industry that's incredibly wasteful um, and unethical in many ways. I completely agree. Most of my clothes are passed down from my older sisters and I yeah. and I make sure to kind of reuse them or like... Um, even cut them up. I think there is um, an emerging, um, like, increase in interest around people wanting to mend and upcycle their own clothes, and it gives you a sense of really taking care of the things that you own, and if you're going to buy something, look after it, and it's better to repair it than just chuck it out. At, you know, even if you send it to Vinnie's, like, or, you know, the Salvos, like, these guys cannot really cope with the demand of clothes that's being passed on to them, so if you think you're doing a good thing by passing it on to a thrift store... A lot of the time you're not because then they can't cope with the demand and then they end up dumping it in landfill um, if they can't sell it in their stores. So, you know, buy well, um, check for ECA accreditation, try not to chuck stuff out and give it a new life or wear it for as long as you can. Are there any challenges associated with running a sustainable brand and how do you overcome them? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, to the issue we were talking about before around, you know, fast fashion and mainstream fashion culture, that's kind of what we're up against. As a sustainable brand, our prices are typically higher than, um, than similar brands that are made 
fast or made offshore or made unethically or wastefully, um, our prices are higher. So I think there's a whole piece around consumer education that in order to buy clothes that align with your values, like if you care about the planet and sustainability and if you care about human rights and, and women's rights, particularly, you know, workers being paid fair and not forced or enslaved by their employers, um, you, you're going to need to spend a little bit more to reflect the true cost of the clothes. Um, so I think that's the key challenge we're up against and, and the, our culture is, is doing much better at the moment um, with the climate crisis. I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that we have the power as individuals to create change in the way that we shop with our wallets with the way we spend our money and with our voices and the brands that we champion and talk about to, to make sure that we, we really raise up those brands that are doing good and that are more sustainable and ethical. The social outfit launched the Wear the Change campaign this week, which unfortunately ended yesterday. Can you tell us what this initiative entailed? Uh, well, uh, we are so grateful to all of our supporters. I just want to say that straight up because we've been completely overwhelmed and we barely have words for the gratitude we feel for our supporters who've come together. Um, so Wear the Change is an ethical fashion styling challenge that we run um, this week during Refugee Week to really celebrate the contribution that humanitarian migrants are making in the fashion industry right here in Sydney, um, to celebrate the workers at the social outfit who make our beautiful clothes as well as drive the ethical and sustainable fashion movement forward. So we invited people to sign up and fundraise for the social outfit by taking on the challenge of wearing one ethical garment styled in five ways over five days. So there's actually this really cool creative challenge embedded in that because, um, you know, once you get to day three, it's like, oh, okay, you know, I've, I've worn my outfit three ways so far. How can I style it for day four and five? And I think, you know, this is what fashion's all about when you push to your creativity with some limitations around what you've got to wear. And we are just seeing, um, you know, everyone's having so much fun with it. And um, we set ourselves a fundraising target um, of $30,000 and that fund those funds have gone into continuing to support our non-profit community programs, which were heavily impacted due to COVID-19. You know, our store, our retail store had to be closed for two months, um, so we had a severe hit to our, our income. Um, our sales were really down because of the shop being closed, and we had to suspend a lot of our face-to-face -face programs. And so we, we're trying to fundraise to bring some of, more of that work online, and the whole campaign was just an absolute delight. Thank you so much for your time today, Kate. Thanks so much, Nicole. Really appreciate your support. That report was from our producer, Nicole Ilyagoyeva, on empowering refugees through sustainable fashion. She was speaking with Kate Glugson from ethical clothing label The Social Outfit. You can donate to Wear the Change via their Instagram page, The Social Outfit. We'll also tweet out the link, so check it out there. That's right. Well, that's all the time we've got for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful, Millie Roberts, Vanessa Lim, and Nicole Ilyagoyeva. And thanks again to our guests, Pam Barker and Kate Glugston. We'll catch you next week, but before we do, we're going to play a song. That's right. It is a misty Saturday morning, and it I want to cheer us all up here in Sydney, so I think we need a bit of Fat Boy Slim to Ooh. cheer us up. Yeah? Yes. This is right here. Oh. <laughs> right now, guys. Enjoy your weekend. <laughs>